0: I have a very special greeting for you this morning. Sunny Banani Basalwani, which is how we began our service last Sunday at Liberty Church Manzini. I learned a little, Siswati, I mean, a very little, which basically what I just said means hello or good morning, church. I got to tell you, I thought I was, you know, I was fairly impressed with myself until J.R. Carmichael, who is our Brooklyn community pastor, got up and led worship. He didn't just sing along. He led in Saswati and Zulu last weekend. That is pretty impressive stuff, people. And uh, we launched our brand new community In Manzini, Swaziland, in Southern Africa, I work, if you knew around here, that we've been uh, heading towards for years. We've got a beautiful community center down there. We've been serving the needs of the city, and it's just been an incredible story. And so Andy and I and the four kids uh, were down there for launch Sunday. I mean, the numbers never really tell the story, but there was 298 people turned out for the launch of the church, (laughs) including 114 children. That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of kids. And frankly, you know, a sign of some of the need that they have in the community down there is that about 50% of those kids came unattended by a grown-up. So God, we're just believing as we partnered there for the restoration of families. 36 people gave their lives to Jesus. And maybe the best part for me is it just felt like our church. It was amazing. I mean, it looked different, sounded different, but it had the essence and the DNA of who we are in the very midst of it. It was just absolutely amazing beautiful. I got a message that I believe is a word in season for us as a church, and I I wanted to bring it across our communities this Memorial Day. It was inspired by a question I heard a pastor ask just a couple of weeks ago. I was at like a, a round table, a small gathering of pastors in Birmingham, Alabama, with Pastor Chris Hodges from Church of the Highlands, another great church in the network that we're a part of, the Association of Related Churches. And Chris asked this question. He said, are you living on the wrong side of the comma? Are you living on the wrong side of the comma? His contention, and I'm going to explain what he means by this question, his contention is that too much of the church world, too many followers of Jesus, are living on the wrong side of the comma found in John 14, verse 15. In the New American translation, it says this, John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, here's the comma, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It was a really insightful conversation because Pastor Chris is saying there's two ways of understanding, two ways of emphasizing this statement, and depending on whether you emphasize love or obedience, you change everything about this statement of Jesus. See, one way to understand this is, is like this way, almost in a stern tone, as if Jesus is trying to say to people, prove it to me. If you love me, keep my commandments. almost like he's daring them to prove that they really love him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's how you'll show me that you love me. Pastor Chris made the comment that he said, you know, the other way of understanding that statement would be to say, if, if you had this revelation of, Love is as if Jesus is saying, Hey, if you love me, you keep my commandments. When the emphasis is on the first half of the sentence, when we emphasize love and we live on the right side of the comma, we understand that it's from a place of love that we learn to walk in obedience with God. Am I trying to prove my love to God every day by keeping his commandments? Am I trying to obey my way into love? or to earn His love as if I could, or am I on the other side of the comma, loving Him, loving Him deeply and receiving His love for me, and seeing that love lead to a changed life of obedience? There's all the difference in the world. Which side of that statement we emphasize you know, in, in order to really understand what Jesus is saying there, let's widen the context for a minute. What did he say right before this statement, and what did he say right after this statement? Well, in verse 14, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. So Jesus is saying, right before he gives this statement, he says, you know, if ask me anything, and I'll do it. Ask anything in my name. I'm on your side. And then he says if you love me, you'll keep my commandments as if to say, I'm, I'm helping you here. Ask me for help. And then he says in verse 16 and 17, after that statement, he says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. It's the Holy Spirit He speaks of. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. What's Jesus saying here? See, that statement in the middle, taken out of context, could sound like this bar we have to live up to by our own human efforts. And yet, Jesus is saying, in some ways, that the whole of the Godhead, three in one, are conspiring for your success. He says, Ask, and I'll do it for you. And guess what? The Father is on your side, and He's sending the Helper, capital H, Holy Spirit, abiding with you, living with you, to help you be transformed in love. We're on your side. So if you take your notes this morning, the title of this message is simply living from love. Living from love. I want to give you in the time that I have this morning, six keys to living differently, six keys to living from love. And the first is this, if you take your notes, the first is a question I think we ought to ask ourselves. Number one, are we living from love or for love? Are we living from love, from a place of knowing that we are loved? Are we living from there, or are we living for love, striving for love, for acceptance, for affirmation? I wonder if you're living from a revelation that you are already loved— this changes everything about the way we walk with Jesus. Are you living from a revelation that you are already loved? Or are you striving to live the right way, hoping that if you could only this week, finally, be a good boy, or be a good girl, God would love you. That's what it looks like when you live for love, when you live for God's love. It's, here's, a, here's an important truth for you and I to understand and get deeply in our hearts. Is it's actually not possible for God to love you any more than He already does? <laughs> that should take some of the striving out of our living. It's not possible for God to love you any more than He already does. He loves you deeply, unconditionally, completely, knowing who you are and everything about you. God wholly loves you. It's not possible for Him to love you any more. And you know what else? It's not possible for Him to love you any less. We imagine that God's love goes up and down with our good days and our bad days, our obeying and our disobeying, our faith and our fear, that the love of God somehow ebbs and flows. No, He is constant. He's faithful when we're faithless. So you can live every day from a knowledge that you are fully loved. It is possible, I will say this, it's possible for Him to reward you more or reward you less (laughs) right? On the basis of our decisions, there might be consequences, but that's got nothing to do with love. We imagine those things together, consequences and love, but not in the Father's heart. No, we might reap rewards or lose rewards on the basis of the choices we make in this life, but it's disconnected completely from God's love for you. Regardless of your choices, He loves you. And what I've discovered is, by the way, if that were not true, then Jesus would never have died for us. If it was dependent on our actions and our holiness, Jesus would never have died because He died while we were sinners, the Bible says. While our backs were turned, He died for us. Our actions could never have precipitated the love of God extended to us. And here's what I know, is the more in love with God you are, the more His will flows through your life takes all the striving out of it, the more in love with the Father you are, the more of His nature you're going to see at work in your life. I started writing a little list this week of things that happen when I live from love instead of living for love, some things I've experienced. When I I live from love, number one, I feel grateful for every blessing. There's something about realizing how loved I am that that makes me grateful for blessing instead of entitled. Entitled. Isn't that the truth? When I live from love, I feel deeply grateful for all the goodness of God I see in my life. Secondly, when I live from love, I have a deep sense of security. A deep sense of security, even when I stumble. And it's maybe all the more important when I stumble to know that I am loved every day, all day, not just on my good day. Say, a deep sense of security. Thirdly, when I, when I live from love instead of living for love, I know the difference between consequences and punishment. You might think they're synonyms, but there's a different spirit between those things. You know, I don't know, those of you who are parents in the room might have experienced that difference when your children make choices for which there are consequences. This is not about the withdrawal of love. That's what punishment con- connotes for me. I, I think about the withdrawal of love, the breaking of relationship is the spirit of punishment. You know, I can love my children fully and there can still be consequences for their choices. It's, it's a different spirit. Fourthly, when I, when I live from love, if I find myself drawn to sin, I press into love. If I find myself drawn off track, instead of striving harder, doing more, I I press into love, and it's love that strengthens me. In other words, I run to God and not from Him, because I have this deep sense of His love for me. See, if my relationship with God is built on fear, then when I'm falling or stumbling or my heart is straying, I run from Him for fear of judgment or fear of punishment, when I, when I live from love, I run to Him and not from Him. And fifthly, when I live from love, my motivation is internal. It's love instead of external in fear. That's God's desire for you, church, is for you to live deeply from love. Number two, the second key, I think, to understanding what it is to live from love this morning is to ask yourself this question, is love shaping our identity. Is love shaping our identity? There's something fascinating in Scripture where, you know, through all of what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know that Jesus walked every day with the Father. In fact, He's the model, the picture of perfect, unbroken communion or relationship with the Father, right? And so as Jesus walks with the Father every day, he's praying, he's communing, he's speaking with the Father. We know at times he even withdrew to solitary places to pray. And out of all of those prayers, out of all of those conversations, only twice does the Bible record for us what the Father said back to him. Out of all of those times, only twice do we know what the Father said. And do you know on both occasions the Father said the same thing? On both occasions, the first is in Matthew 3 at Jesus' baptism. So this is, in a sense, the beginning of his earthly ministry. And then again, verbatim, the same words in Matthew 17 at what we call the ascension after his death and resurrection before Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father. The the Father says the exact same thing, and we'll read it from Matthew chapter 3. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, verse 16, he went up out of the water And at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, listen, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. You see love shaping his identity there, church? This is, and this is the audible voice of God for everyone all around that just watched Jesus being baptized. It was later the audible voice of God with the three disciples, the inner circle, witnessing this interaction of Jesus before His ascension. This is my Son, whom I love, and with Him I am well pleased. See, even Jesus had his identity affirmed by the Father. I can't help but think how much more, and this is Jesus who walked, walked perfectly with the Father, how much more do you and I need to receive that identity from him? How much more do you and I need to know that we are loved and who we are in him? You know, as a, as a parent, it's so important that I understand the difference of speaking to my children. It's not just about the words that I say, it's about the, the spirit that I say them in, right? Right. Am I, am I speaking to my children from love or from frustration? Anybody else feeling, I'm feeling convicted this morning. I don't know if I'm just preaching this message for myself, right? Does your child know that they are loved? And if you don't happen to have children, what about your spouse? What about your loved ones? What about the team that you're building at work? You know, what are we speaking from? Are we speaking from love? It's so important for people, especially our children as we raise them, for them to know deeply that they're loved. I've got a game I play with our kids pretty much every day, sometimes multiple times a day. I'll quiz the kids, and I'm, I'm quizzing Sam a lot at the moment. He's four. Hannah, uh, I'll say to him, I said it in the car on the way here from our Brooklyn community this morning. I said, Sam, guess what I'm thinking? And he says, I love you, Dad. <laughs> he knows every time I ask him, what am I thinking, that I'm thinking I love you. I play this game over and over and over and over. I've got a thousand variations like, hey, I want to tell you a secret. Uh, Can you read my mind right now? But really what I'm saying a thousand times over and over and over is, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Sometimes I'll say, I don't know if I've told you this before. Dad, you tell me every day. I think that is a good thing for him to have deeply ingrained in his identity. I'm loved. In fact, I think we got a photo of Sam from our trip. There he is. There is a child who has a sense of identity, amen? I am the future. Yes, you are. You know, of course, I'm not talking about raising precocious and, you know, entitled children, but the world takes so much from us, the hits to our identity. It's so important that you and I know deeply that we're loved. And you know what? He's not a perfect child, and I'm not a perfect parent. But it's a wonderful foundation for your life to build on the knowledge that regardless of what the day might bring that you are deeply loved, amen? Amen. Number three, third key for us to understand what it is to live from love is to realize number three, loveless obedience produces what I call the older brother spirit, the older brother spirit. Now the older brother, we're going to read the passage in a minute is a a character in a Bible story that is often preached about, but he's usually not the focus of the way that people preach it. It's a story, very famous, one of the most famous Bible passages about the the so-called prodigal son. And if you're familiar with it, we're going to read the second half of it in a minute in Luke 15, usually the focus is on the younger brother. This younger brother you know, he goes to his father and he says, you know, I want my inheritance, which culturally was basically the same thing as saying, I wish you were dead, which is when he would have received the inheritance. So he takes his half of the inheritance, he runs away, lives crazy, squanders it all, prostitutes and wild living, finds himself in a pig pen, which is the last place for a Jewish boy to be, comes to his sentences, he's repentant, and he comes home to the father, who's apparently watching because he runs out to meet him. And lovingly restores him. The story is usually called the, the story of the prodigal son, which is interesting to me. It's not Jesus that named it that. It's, you know, Bible historians that called it that when they put in chapters and verses. You know, to me, I think it leads us to miss a very important character in this story, because I think Jesus was telling us two different brothers' stories. And it's, frankly, in some ways, although the sin of the younger brother is very obvious, there's brokenness in the both of them. And actually, I would make the case that at least the prodigal, his story ends with redemption. His story ends with restoration and conclusion. But you know, you're going to see the older brother's story. The Bible leaves it open-ended. We don't even know where his story lands. We're going to pick it up in the middle of this story with the younger brother coming home. In Luke 15, verse 20, it says, he, the younger brother, got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. By the way, you've got to understand Jesus is telling this as a picture of how our heavenly Father relates to us. So the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. This should be the happy ending of the story, but it's not. In comes the older brother. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked them what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, you think the brother would be excited, but he's not. Verse 28 says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I guess that was a cool thing to do. (laughs) Young goat. Okay, whatever, flicks your switch, I guess, but you know... But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him. You can kind of hear the tone, can't you, in the way, the way he says this. Listen to the father's response. My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, when we, when we live toward God with this loveless obedience, living for love instead of from love, we run the risk of developing the older brother spirit. Did you pick up on his spirit as we read this? It's not just about the words. You can understand the tone that he says them in. I mean, what does he say to his father? He hears a party. Oh, heaven forbid, anybody should be having a good time. And the older brother says, all these years I've been slaving for you. Does this sound like a love-built relationship? Does he have a revelation of who he is and who he is? No, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. It's an interesting way to describe a father-son relationship. But when this son of yours, oh, here we go. There's something going on in that relationship. It's not my brother anymore. It's this son of yours. When this son of yours has squandered your property, maybe in parentheses, our inheritance, which might be partly what this is about, Comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him, and the father's heart is, my son, my son, my, you're my son, my son, my son, you're always with me. In other words, hey, we got relationship, we got relationship here. And he says, everything I have is yours. It's almost as if he just never asked. Maybe he was so focused on everybody else. Maybe he was so focused on his loveless obedience, never disobeying your commands. All these years, slaving. And he missed what it was all about, love-based relationship. He obeyed without love. In other words, in Chris Hodges' terms, I think he lived on the wrong side of the comma, fulfilling the commandments. You know, loveless obedience won't produce good fruit in your life. It just won't. He'd been the so-called good son of the story, I guess. But he had brokenness in his heart that crippled him. And when his younger brother receives mercy and restoration... Instead of rejoicing and being glad for redemption in his family, what pours out of him is bitterness and angst and jealousy and judgment. That's what happens, church, when we live with loveless obedience. It produces in us not only all of those awful things, but you know what? We lose sight of relationship, and we lose sight of the blessing that we have. The Father says... Everything I have is yours. If you wanted a goat, I didn't say so. (laughs) Everything I have is yours. I'm right here. We are living this journey together, but the older brother lost sight of that through loveless obedience. Number four. Fourth key to understanding what it is to live from love is number four, motive matters. Motive matters. You know, to the Father's heart, it matters why we do what we do. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about where it comes from. What's the motive in you and I? It matters why we do what we do. You know, as a dad, it's just a beautiful thing to watch my kids do, you know, the right thing, do the righteous thing, not because I told them, not because I'm watching, not because I commanded it, but because it just flows out of their heart who they are. That's a beautiful thing to watch that. To do it out of love, in other words, and out of their own free will, and not out of fear or my command. You know, do, they, do my kids do what I want, so to speak? I'm giving myself as a, a picture of the father. Of course, I'm an earthly, imperfect father, but even in my father-son, father-daughter relationships, do they do the father's will, in that sense, out of control? Because I make them. Well, that's, that's going to fade, isn't it? That's not something that, that is built to last. That's not going to work. Even naturally speaking, it's one thing for a five-year-old, another thing for a 15-year-old or a 25-year-old, right? That's going to fade, isn't it? Control. Or well, do they do it out of fear? See, you know, you can build relationships on fear, or you can build them on faith, but you can't build them on both. Do my kids obey me out of fear? That's not relationship. Or, or do they, in a sense, do the Father's will? What, 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 what I think is right. Would they, would they do things like their daddy would do them out of love? Now, I recognize I'm an earthly and imperfect father, but how much more our heavenly father should we obey him from a place of love and not from fear? It's beautiful to watch when we see out of our very nature, out of our acting, the father's heart at work. I saw a little glimpse of it in my daughter, Finley, while we're away. One of the things we did besides launching the church was we threw a night called the night of honor for the community, we've got 16 different NGOs, different you know, community organizations that use the community center that we provide for them for free. So the city council was there, and different community leaders were there, different pastors were there. And we did this whole night, we put on a dinner, we gave out awards, you know, people that learned instruments and, and different things gave performances uh, for the night of honor, and we celebrated people in the community. And One of the ways that our kids were involved was they were serving on the team and they took out the refreshments. So my kids had cases of soda, and uh, they were going around distributing bottles of soda to people at the tables, which, by the way, side note, we didn't realize until afterwards. A few people made a comment to us that we didn't realize contextually how significant it was to those watching that our four white children served the room, sent a message. We didn't even realize that we were sending of love and what it looks like to partner together. Amen. Anyway, one of the things I love the most was that towards the end of the night, as they were serving all the drinks, Finley walked up to me. My daughter, she's she's uh, nine, eight, just about to turn nine. She's got two bottles of Fanta. <laughs> this time of year, they're all having birthdays. It's a nightmare keeping up with them all. She brings two bottles of Fanta, and she says, "Dad, Mum said we could have a bottle of soda once we served everybody else." I said, "No problem." And she was just about to open one, and a little boy from the local community there walked up to her and said, um, "I was going to get a Fanta, but it didn't come." And so me, not knowing any of the backstory, said to Finley, oh, that's okay, give him one of those ones. She says, okay, and she smiles, hands it to the little boy. He walks away. I said, "Go, just go get yourself another one from the fridge. And she said, oh, they were the last ones, Dad. And I realized in that moment, without skipping a beat, something of the Heavenly Father's heart in her didn't hesitate to sacrifice. You know, it would have been so normal, maybe even justifiable for her to say, but these are the two we saved for us, but something of her heart. Without me having to say so or organize it, just bled the Father's heart for others, to put others before herself. Why is this so important to talk about? is because when I'm talking about motive matters, what I'm really saying is that God's battle in your life is not over your behavior. God's battle is not over your behavior, it's over your heart. We imagine God's all tied up in knots about our swearing, our smoking, our lying and our cheating. Well, firstly, God's not all tied up in knots about anything. Uh, (laughs) But secondly, if God's in a battle, I tell you, it's not over all the exterior world that you can so easily focus on. He wants your heart. You know, God knows that if He has your heart, He has everything else. God knows that when your heart changes, all the behavior changes from the inside out. Church is not some behavior modification program where we come along to behave, be a good boy, be a good girl, fit in. No. It's the changing of the heart. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. No wonder God's after our hearts, church. He's not just over loveless obedience. He's after our hearts. He's after our motive. The man, the woman that you truly are, your heart, what makes you tick when when God connects with you in unbroken love there, everything else flows naturally. What What if I saw my sins as love problems instead of behavior problems? What if my temptations or my struggles, my fears and my doubts, instead of making me strive more, would would cause me to ask, where is my love getting broken? Is my love tank full? It would cause me to press into relationship with the Father instead of running from Him in fear of judgment. Motive matters. I obey the Lord because I love Him. Amen? Number five. Let me give you two more. The fifth key to living from love is, is, and this is important, love doesn't mean there's no standard. Let me bring a little balance on the other side here for a moment, teach the whole context of this for a minute, because we could so easily imagine, well, if that's true, and you know, there's no fear, and perfect love casts out all fear, then, then love and grace means there's no standard. Love and grace means anything goes. Love and grace means sin doesn't matter. Well, That's not the case. And the Apostle Paul, writing his letter to the church in Rome, addressed this imbalance. And and the Apostle Paul, above anybody, teaches the gospel of grace. Above anybody, ensures that the whole world understands the foundation of their salvation. But in Romans 6, verse 1 to 2, having taught about grace and not law, faith and not works, he says this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase. Because he's been talking about how where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more so. Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. We are those who've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Love is the key to our obedience. See, some would say, well, it's grace, not works. It's grace, not works. And if you're talking about salvation, I would say, amen. I agree with you. Grace not works. And yet, if, if, it's, if it's all grace and there's no standard at all, how do we reconcile things like Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira lie and are struck dead on the spot? Wait a minute, what happened to grace? <laughs> Apparently there was consequences, fairly severe ones in that instance, right? How do we reconcile that? Here's, here's what we need to understand. I'm not trying to preach some Fire and brimstone, you know, judgment, gospel. But what we have to understand is we play a dangerous game when we act as though being loved is a license for lawlessness. That's a dangerous game we play when we say love and grace, redemption, forgiveness means anything goes. There's no standards, as if there's no consequences. See, I kind of think the opposite happens. I think when we get a deep revelation of the price that Jesus paid, when we know how deeply loved we are we want to honor his sacrifice by living like him we shouldn't look fully into that sacrifice and the price paid for you and i and then walk away and trample on that as if it's worthless no it wouldn't cause us to be lawless it would cause us to be shaped by what the father loves i give you dozens of examples in scripture but i mean one of them would be the woman caught in the act of adultery if you're familiar with the story it's in john 8 i believe yeah in john 8 And what happens at the end of the story is she's been caught, she's been thrown at the feet of Jesus, people are trying to trap Jesus, and then through this beautiful twist of events, Jesus said, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. Everybody's convicted of their own sin, they slip away. Jesus says, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. And you might think, well, there it is, see? Grace means there's no standard. Wait a minute. So Jesus says, go, and then he says, and sin no more. Oh, isn't that interesting? Grace sets her free by no right good doing of her own. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then, and then raises the standard. She's redeemed by grace. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Love sets her free and then it raises the standard. We live from love. And when we live from love, by the way, we're not afraid of commitment. You know, we've got a thing uh, for our leadership team, even for those in places of influence like our platform that we call the Code of Honor. And the Code of Honor is something that we put together to try and put into words, put into writing what we believe it looks like when people live like Jesus and steward well the leadership or the influence that they have in our church. Does having a Code of Honor mean we are opposed to grace as a church? No, but is it okay for us to expect that people are gonna do their very best through the empowerment of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to live biblical lives in places of leadership? I think it is. I think if we live and love what God loves, his people and his church, then it's right to expect that we ought to be living more like him every day. Amen? Thankfully, we don't do that in our own strength. We do that empowered by him. I'm faithful to Andy, not because of law, but because of love. Because if you, if you want to go down this path of it's, it's grace or not works, was it works the day I said before the minister and all of our friends and family, till death do us part? Am I upholding our covenant of marriage today because of law? No, it's because of love, amen? It's because of love. If I was unfaithful to her and then claimed that I'm under a covenant of grace, would that be love? <laughs> that would be suicide is what that would be. And do I recognize, do, do I recognize that I do that empowered every day by love, capital L, love himself to fulfill that promise? You can call that works if you want. I call it love. I call it love. Nobody taught grace more than the apostle Paul Yet nobody raised the standard for the early church more than he did. Here are the qualifications of an elder. Here are the qualifications of a deacon. Here's how the gifts fit together. Here's what church discipline looks like. Here's what order in a church service looks like. Love doesn't mean there's no standard because, number six, my last thought, is love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. This is really big. And to be honest, I got a big revelation of this in the last month myself. I've preached these passages, but something, you ever have one of those moments like an aha moment when it all clicks into place? That was me and these verses in the last few weeks. Matthew 15, 17 to 18, Jesus speaking, He says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is making the point here that the arrival of the covenant of grace, the new covenant, did not suddenly abolish the law. In fact, what he's saying is, in love, living in love under grace, fulfills the requirements of the law. It wasn't until I was studying Romans a few weeks ago that I realized that unconsciously I'd always felt like love was an alternative to the law. Love was kind of like a higher road, a better new way, like 2.0 versus the law. But you know, I suddenly realized what Jesus means when he says love fulfills the law by reading Romans 13, 8 to 10. The Apostle Paul here says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Listen, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. You know, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Listen to this, this is so big. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do you see? What Jesus is saying here is that love is the key to all of this. Not that love replaces or abolishes the law, but love itself is the key to fulfilling the law. Love does everything the law requires, but for the right reasons. When we love and deeply love God and what He loves, people, His church, when we love deeply, We do everything the law requires, but for the right reason. When we we love deeply, we understand that love is the antidote to everything that the law opposes, right? If we love God and love people fully, we won't murder. We won't steal or cheat or covet or have other gods before him. Jesus doesn't say forget the commandments. He shows us the way to fulfill them. So suddenly it made sense to me why Jesus in another passage Who was being tested by some Pharisees? They were experts in the law. They loved the law so much that they took God's law and added hundreds more man made laws on top of it. And I think this Pharisee thought he was gonna trick Jesus. It actually says in the scripture he was trying to test him after the Sadducees and other group had failed to trip Jesus up. He tests Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 to 40. Says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, An expert in the law tested him with this question. In other words, when it says he tested him, that was the spirit. It wasn't even a genuine question, but Jesus, of course, was up to the challenge. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I imagine, by the way, he's asking this thinking it's the unsolvable riddle, (laughs) that there's no right way out of all of the law. How could there possibly be one that was more important than the others? What does Jesus say? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's what he says. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. You want to know what the greatest is? Love God, love your neighbor. Why? Because it fulfills the law. Every, everything else, Jesus says, all of the other commandments hang on. On these two things. Jesus says to love with all you are. He says with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, wholeness is part of what Jesus brings to you and I, wholeness. And we're out of that place of wholeness, whole love before him. Love fulfills the law. As one of the worship team comes and joins me for a minute, what you got to understand here, I guess I always thought that what Jesus was saying, these are the best two. You know, you're only human. You're not going to be able to do everything. So let me just shorten the list. I know it's a lot. Let me just give you the best two. These are like the law's greatest hits. If you could just do these two things, that's good enough, guys. You know, I know you're only human, right? As if Jesus was trying to simplify or trivialize away a bunch of things. And I suddenly realized that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, you want the master key, you want to understand what's the key to everything? I'll show you the master key. It's love. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you will fulfill the law. Love is the key to everything else. To love is to fulfill the, the law. To love is to do what God requires. Amen? You and I have a choice, church, about how we're going to live our lives. Will we live our lives striving for love. We live our lives richly, deeply, whole in Him on a sure foundation where we live our lives from love. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.